In this episode of Shaping the Future, I'm speaking to global security expert Dr. Chad Briggs at the University of Alaska, Anchorage. Chad advises many global organizations on the intersection between climate change and national and regional security issues. His clients include the US State Department, US Air Force, the Swedish Armed Forces, the European Union, as well as the US Department of Energy, among many others. Chad explains the linkages between climate change and hybrid warfare situations that are going on now and will continue to pose a massive threat to societies around the world. These include government-level sources of disinformation such as the Global Warming Policy Foundation in the UK or the Heartland Institute in the US, who are funded by fossil fuel interest groups to sow doubt and chaos that drive us further down the road of climate catastrophe. I want to thank the Global Military Advisory Council on Climate Change, that's GMAC, for their help in organising this mini-series of interviews with security experts. The next interview will be with former Obama White House advisor and head of the US National Security Council for Climate, Alice Hill about her new book due out in September. Additional segments on geoengineering and models versus first-hand knowledge from this interview with Chad will be available later this week to Patreon backers via GenCC. This will be accompanied with an overview of forthcoming interviews and reflections on key points that are emerging from this series. Thanks for listening to Shaping the Future. You can subscribe on YouTube or any podcast channel and sign up for email updates on gen.cc. I will also be covering COP26 in Glasgow and conducting interviews with a wide range of participants. So do stay tuned and if you can, please support my work via Patreon. Okay, Chad, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me today. In your published work that I've seen, you talk about the concept of hybrid warfare and how this can link to climate change. Can you start by giving a brief definition of hybrid warfare and an example of how it might intersect with extreme climate impacts that we're already seeing? Yeah, thank you, Nick. I came to Alaska from working in Kosovo and Ukraine, and much of my work there was focused on hybrid warfare. And the idea there is that the traditional definitions of security are often based, Western definitions of security are based on this idea of peace, war, peace meaning that we have these conditions of peace, and then there's a threshold that's crossed where we're going to war and that eventually we go back to peace. And hybrid warfare is the recognition that that's not really accurate, that oftentimes we find ourselves on a continuum where there could be a, a large number of different actions all going towards the same strategic end, but can express themselves differently. And on the far end, there's the traditional military security of you know, so-called kinetic warfare, where you have men and women in uniforms firing rifles at one another. But less than that, you, you have issues like cyber warfare or political warfare, information warfare, economic sanctions, all these things that can ultimately undermine an adversary security, but don't necessarily come up to the recognition that, oh, wait a second, we're under attack. And the US and NATO have really had a difficult time, I think, coming to terms with that because institutionally, because of Article 5, and also just organizationally and ideologically, we don't think that way. Climate change intersects that in a, in a couple of ways. First, there's the issue that it affects readiness, it affects operations, and it affects where operations take place, meaning the long-term strategy. So even when you're trying to figure out where are our security interests and what do we need to defend in the first place, then that's going to change the calculus quite a bit. And the U.S. has certainly experienced that with the opening of the Arctic and realizing that they need to focus here now. And okay, what does that even mean? What do gray operations, meaning operations that 
are carried out by adversaries, but you know, we don't necessarily see them very easily. What, what does that mean? And it also affects operations, of course, meaning that the, the military now has to realize, and, and this really came out earlier this year in the Army's Arctic strategy, um, they're not ready to operate in the Arctic, uh, meaning that they have some troops that are available, but they really need to up their, their readiness and training. But more than that, we have to worry about cyber. We have to worry about economic security. Uh, what does it mean for indigenous communities to, to live in these areas? And adversaries can undermine that. And, and that's one of the other dimensions, meaning when we've gone through war games of looking at what happens with security in places like the Arctic, it, it mirrored a lot of what I've seen in the Balkans or in the Ukraine, where an adversary can very easily undermine someone's resilience. Uh, and this is what I call resilience targeting, where you can undercut a community's ability to respond to a disaster, its ability to understand what's going on with climate, in, in technical military terms, the domain awareness. And all those things look like they're, they're not really related to security, but in fact, they can be. And there are strategies to either undermine our, our understanding of climate change, to understand our ability to respond to climate change. And I think that's every bit as important a security factor than the, the more traditional and sort of hard kinetic issues that we look at. That's really interesting. In terms of climate, we see a lot of interconnections, I think, because we have Russia, for example, which is a fossil fuel economy, and the fossil fuel companies are very international. And then you heard in the Trump administration, the former head of an oil company who had received a friendship award from Russia, and you see all of these interconnections, while at the same time, Russia is waging a disinformation or a hacking campaign against the US or maybe against Britain. It becomes very complex. And by your definitions, this is all seems to be part of that security threat landscape. I mean, is there anything we can do about that? How do you unpick something like that? Well, I, I think partly it needs to be a broader understanding um, in, in terms of like a whole of government strategy and response. So as example, there was recently a $25 billion uh, supplemental budget that was attached to the US Department of Defense budget by Congress. And it was focused partly on Europe and partly on the Pacific and the Arctic. But everything that they discussed with the exception of some issues related to cybersecurity are just traditional military security, building ships, building aircraft. And I think we really need to invest more in this information side. There was a story that just came out in the New York Times by Coral Davenport and Lisa Friedman that talks about how the government, the US federal government, lost so many of its climate experts over the last five years. And you just can't get them back very easily. And that really affects the US government's ability to respond. The US used to be really a leader in understanding climate security, the ability to assess and understand anywhere in the world what's going to happen in terms of climate security. What does it affect? How does it cascade? And we don't have that understanding. So I think governments, and at all levels, right, it's not just the federal governments, but communities have to have this understanding as well. Universities have to be involved to understand that we need this broader awareness of how all of this is affecting us. Because when, when my students, for example, look at Arctic security, it's not just having Russian boots on the ground um, in Alaska, because that doesn't really happen. But they really have to worry about a lot of other things. And just even asking how viable are our communities? And it becomes an existential question then, because if if people can't live in the far north here, 
then what are we protecting in the first place? You know, why have Arctic security if no one can live here? Or if the only people are attached to military bases? Okay, we'll come back to the Arctic in a minute. But I just wanted to ask about this disinformation when it enters the public discourse. It divides us. And we've seen it in the UK. We've, we've seen it in the US. And that in itself is breaking down our resilience Because if you've got a disunited population. Are these, again playing into it because well when you overlay the climate problem at the moment in again in recent times we've seen impact after impact after impact and then in the uk we've got the global warming policy foundation which is a disinformation outfit you know very close to the heart of government and in america you might have the heartland institute or whatever you know you have these sources of disinformation do these fall into a, a security threat in terms of weakening the resilience of the population they do, they do. And, and I really wish more people wrote about that. Um, I, I don't like being one of the only ones. Yeah, it does. I know people have talked about it from the uh, policy side. Uh, so scientists like Michael Mann, I think he recently wrote a book that, that talks specifically about, you know, attacks on scientists, because he was one of those. And if you go back to what happened with ClimateGate back in 2009, the attacks on scientists from University of East Anglia and Penn State, that was a good example of really coordinated attack of cyber aggression, right? Picking out vulnerable people in a institution, which then signals to everyone else that you need to keep your head down and that you can't trust this information and that we're going to attribute it differently. And I think in the lead up to Copenhagen in 2009, it really did have an effect. So yeah, the policy responses are really fettered if we don't have a good understanding and if people can't just make the attribution and say that, okay, what happened in the Pacific Northwest in the US just a few weeks ago, like that's climate related. Yeah. But e even if people make that connection, then they could jump to the wrong conclusion. And I've seen a lot of cases in the US where people go straight from denialism to fatalism and they'll go, okay, okay, I, I agree. Climate change is a problem now, but it's too late and there's nothing that we can do. And that's just as damaging, I think. So the disinformation, it's really exploded during the pandemic as well, because uh, you have so many more people exposed to social media. And there's a really close link between the climate disinformation and pandemic disinformation. So they, they tend to amplify each other. And it's interesting you mentioned sort of Copenhagen, which is over 10 years ago, but in those days, we were talking about climate very much in the future sense. And now this is all unfolding around us and, and simultaneously around the world. It's taking us by surprise and it is causing stress, chaos. Uh, when it comes to really poor people who are forced to move, we see the media demonizing these people, you know, often refugees, as if they are somehow the cause of the problem when the truth is pretty much the opposite. Who benefits when refugees and migrants are demonized in this way? That's a longstanding, I think, political ideology that has come out, um, not just in the US, but we've seen it in Europe for years. And one of my friends, Brooke Brinkowski, talks about this in terms of the Taunton Network, that there are actually paid networks that you can trace back to the 1950s and 1960s and the whole idea of overpopulation, because it was always overpopulation somewhere else. And in the 1990s, it got linked to climate change and environment for the first time, even though they didn't really mention climate change, but they were talking about resource scarcity. So you get like the, the Robert Kaplan coming anarchy and uh, these ideas of Rust Belly and literature, you know, all these brown bodies washing on Southern European shores. And 
it definitely plays into a lot of nationalist politics. Uh, we've seen that in Europe, we've seen it in the United States, and it, it works in other countries. I mean, certainly what happened between Myanmar, uh, Bangladesh, India, was really horrific. And I should point out, it's not always just the people who are moving, but you know, the people who are left behind are often even worse situations. Uh, but yeah, people get demonized for what is really just kind of a natural reaction. I think a better understanding of the connections, and there's some effort with that in the Biden administration to look at, say, in Latin America, what's causing people to leave places like Central America and go into the U.S., and understanding that these can be climate-related, these intersect though with like criminal networks who then take advantage of people's lack of resilience or lack of income, take over land, uh, and, and then push people out. In the sort of security side of it, are there, and you mentioned Biden looking into the causes, do you think there are proposals that could see us helping, if you're a wealthy nation, helping to build climate resilience at the source? Do you think that's something that's going to come more to the fore? I, I certainly hope so. How much it gets baked into development policies, I suppose, remains to be seen. So when I give, for example, briefings to people in the State Department, and they sort of ask, well, you know, what can foreign service officers do abroad? There's one example that I always saw when I was in Kosovo. USAID, the U.S. Agency for National Development, would bring volunteers, like farmers from the U.S., and they work with individual farmers in Kosovo and help them with things like, okay, these are the crops that you can get directly to market. You don't have to work through corrupt middlemen. Here's something that's more value for money. Here's how you do it. And that was so much more valuable than simply throwing money or having large structural changes in the country. And it's more adaptable because even a small country like Kosovo had these microclimates. And so from valley to valley, what you could grow was gonna be really different. And, and that sort of granular knowledge of the impacts is really what's necessary because so much of understanding climate security isn't just looking at the averages and people saying, well, it's gonna be 1.5 or two degrees Celsius, but really drilling down and saying, okay, in this valley for these farmers, this is gonna be the impact and these have to be the potential responses. And I think the development industry has to be a lot more flexible in looking at how they do that because the big money response, just throwing money at it isn't gonna, isn't gonna solve the problem. Um, to increase resilience, you really need to look at the local level and the community level and, and give people the tools to respond. One big problem we have is that our dependency on fossil fuel is actually supporting some of the regimes that are doing the disinformation campaigns or the hacking, et cetera. And, you know, we come back to Russia on that one, where you highlight that 40% of revenue comes from sales of oil and gas. And yet the EU is a major customer. And how does a relationship like this play out when you're trying to get off the fossil fuel? You know, you're, you're kind of, it's always feels like we're sort of locked in to a bad situation. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, and I should say with, um, all humility that Alaska is in kind of the same situation. We, we really rely upon the oil industry for, uh, for much of the economy, too much of it. But yeah, the European-Russian connection, uh, it, it's been very difficult because you, you go back to, yeah, go back to Copenhagen again. And it was obviously in the Russian Federation's interest to undermine the European Union and European economic community from coming up with more sustainability and climate mitigation policies because it undercut their security. It undercut how you know, Russia views exporting oil and gas as central to its national security. 
And so if the Europeans are saying we're going to buy less of that, then that to them is a national security threat. So of course they're going to attack the scientists or attack the policies or do whatever they can to try to co-opt the Europeans into still agreeing to take whatever sorts of oil and gas they need from Russia. And, and it complicates things, definitely, because you see very difficult, I mean, what's happening in Germany, uh, either with Nord Stream 2 or with, you know, what happens with certain former German chancellors who go to work for um, oil and gas companies. Um, and, and, and that sort of circulation, um, and, and we have the same problem in the US with uh, oil and gas companies too, it's big money. Um, yeah. They, they have a lot of power. So how to detach yourself from that? And I suppose at some point, the oil and gas companies had a chance to say, no, we're just going to go renewable. And I, I remember even asking people from BP this back, it's like 12, 13 years ago, and saying, look, you guys have all the, all the money, you have all the technology, you have the market penetration, you could just snap your fingers and do this. And they said, no, we do oil and gas. Um, but I, I know oil executives here in Alaska who've admitted, um, and this was before the pandemic, that their business plan, maybe it lasts for another 20 years and then they're done. Uh, and after that, it's just not gonna be profitable. And, and I think the pandemic has accelerated that, but that's gonna leave people without any sort of plan B, meaning mm -hmm. we're, we're gonna have to transition off and it's already happening, but it, it's very difficult to make that transition and to build the infrastructure. And, and I think that's the big argument right now in Congress is, okay, we need the infrastructure because we can't simply just say, all right, we're done. You need to transition from fossil fuels to electricity and renewables. And doing that, especially over large geographical areas, can be really, really challenging. One thing that came up actually related to this in the interview last week was the suggestion that we need a UN Security Council specifically for climate change. Is that something that you think is a reasonable suggestion or do you think we already have the the bodies in place to deal with? I think that any any elevation of these issues whether it's at the UN level or other international organizations can really be useful just to increase our understanding and to increase the legitimacy of considering these issues that they're not just, you know, boutique environment issues that are off on the side and we'll worry about them later, um, but that they're, they're central to understanding security. Um, what impact that's gonna have policy-wise, that's what I'm not exactly sure, because it's still gonna come down to individual countries and states and communities being able to implement the policies, whether it's increasing resilience or increasing science or coming up with national security strategies. Because I think what we've seen with say floods in, in Europe this summer, these are conditions that Europe just isn't used to dealing with. They've had you know, a pretty good thousand years of pretty stable climate and suddenly things are changing and the infrastructure is just not built for it. So I think raising awareness is one thing, but there need to be uh, policy translations as well. So like at the EU level, there probably needs to be some sort of you know, EU commission just for say climate infrastructure that deals with how do you tie together energy and energy transition in Europe is, is already a very difficult issue, but how do you tie that then to infrastructure and resilience and flooding and everything else? Do you think that with the widespread impacts hitting us from every direction, is there actually opportunities for much greater diplomacy I mean, I tend to focus on the, the negative outcomes, but 
do you think potentially there could be a lot more opportunity for diplomatic solutions? I think so. And I've always hoped so. And, and yeah, it's good that you bring that up because it's it's always easy to, to focus on the negative parts. Trust building exercises are absolutely necessary. And they're, they're good examples of this. One example was a U.S. Department of Defense program that was very quiet and, and deliberately so, meaning for years, what they would do is simply get all of the Asia-Pacific countries together and run disaster scenarios and use that as an excuse to run confidence building measures between the countries so that all the people who were in that sort of area would know if something bad happens, okay, I pick up the phone, I call this person. And yeah, that's going to be more and more necessary in the future, but it has a lot of side effects, like positive side effects in terms of diplomacy, in terms of politics, in terms of trust that you don't get just from traditional military cooperation. We're all in the same boat. And as long as you can design exercises that let people understand that, I think that's potentially really positive. The question is do we have enough time to build all that trust and the pandemic has really hurt us with that because we can have these discussions online but so many of the really valuable discussions are the sort of track to diplomacy the informal diplomacy the nonprofits the academics the scientists the uh, community groups and they can't even get to COP this year, right? I, I don't know when that's going to change. You know, I think we've seen sort of a sudden change in the ability to do the sort of travel. And that's what I sort of worry about, because even if we lose just a few years, that's going to have really big impacts later on mm. in terms of our ability to respond. So the, the pandemic has really hurt us in terms of our ability to do that sort of diplomacy. Yeah, and you talk about losing time, especially when we seem to be in a period of accelerating impact. But just switching away from the positive for a second, this is really the, the last question. But as a civilian who spent the last decade interviewing people about climate change, I can't help feeling we're horribly unprepared. If we are at where you might call phase zero in terms of planning, can you offer a reassuring or pragmatic phase zero plan that we can take away from this conversation? I do talk about phase zero a lot. I'm not very reassuring, though, always when I talk about it. There are opportunities. The one thing I can say is that we've been working on this. I mean, one thing that I tried to get out in, in the book that I wrote with Miriam two years ago was that we're trying to get across the idea that the tools exist. We've been doing these sorts of things for like 10, 12 years now at very high levels. We have very good methods and tools, very good people who can do this. And it's frustrating to give the same sort of talk over and over again. And maybe the reception changes a little bit and we update things just because everyone suddenly starts going, oh, wow, this is really happening now. But the reassuring part is that we can do this. We can understand it. And that many of the things that we're seeing, maybe we're unprepared for them, but they're not unexpected. Meaning floods in Europe, I've been warning about those for like 10 years. The, the extreme heat events, yes, they're really bad. And, and I'll admit that what happened in places like Lytton, Canada, uh, it was just really shocking when, you know, a town in Canada hits 50 degrees Celsius and burns down the next day. But in terms of understanding and knowing what's going to happen and being able to, to give that sort of knowledge to the governments and to communities and to sort of help them along, that exists. It's really just a, a matter of political will of saying, yes, we need to address this and we need to engage these people and we need to just get going, right? So that's the, I guess, the positive part. The part I worry about, as I said, is just how much time do we have? Time always seems to be the, the most finite variable, if you like. Okay, well, look, thank you very much for speaking to me. It's been absolutely fascinating. And uh, hopefully I can 
catch up with you again and update this discussion. Yes, yes, certainly. Happy to. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. If you are interested to help support this series and help expand the discussion around climate topics, then please do consider backing my channel via Patreon. It will help me produce more content and you will also gain access to more expert interviews. It would be great to engage more with audiences too and understand your views on these topics.